Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Paul goes on and says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What we're going to do tonight is finish up the section of verses that we were in last week so we can now move on hopefully tonight the rest of chapter 7 and we'll start touching on a little bit of Romans chapter 8. Now as we have seen Paul already state and here clarify some more, the law not only reveals our sin, it fuels our sin. If you notice, that's what he's saying here. It not only reveals our sin, it fuels it. We've been seeing this, but he goes into a little bit more detail. As you saw here, he says, I didn't even know what sin was until the law said, or I didn't know what covet was, coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then every covetous desire right, rose up in me and I died. Uh, go back to Romans chapter 7 and look at verse 5 again. Because there's a depth to what he's bringing out here that we need to see. Romans chapter 7, look at verse 5. says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our sinful passions were aroused by what? The law actually arouses our sin. The Bible's very clear about that. Go back to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 20. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 Paul says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So again, the law was added so that the trespass, so that sin would increase. A lot of us would think it would be the other way around, that God would give us his law so we would sin less. Actually, because of the problem that we have or had, those of us who are in Christ, had in our flesh, the fact that the law arouses that, that, that passion within us, and then as you're going to see, it brings death. Because of that, God actually added the law so that sin would be aroused and we'd realize what's already there. As we've already talked on many times, people in the world today say, well, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm a pretty good person. They're sinners. They just don't realize it because they think they're okay. God then says, I'm going to give you the law to show you not only what your sin is, but also to amp it up. You remember how when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say to him next? Sell everything you own. Wrong. Keep the law. That's not the next thing he said to him. Chris said it. He said, keep the law. And think about that for a minute. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You and I would have said, hey, sit down. Let me show you the Romans road. You got to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And Jesus says, keep the law. Now, Jesus knows what's really going on behind the scenes in this young man. He knows that this young man thinks he's good. And let's back up in our minds to what happens in the beginning of that story. He comes up and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the law? Jesus then goes and says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, people have said Jesus was there showing that he wasn't God because there's only one good and that's God. No, no, no. Jesus claimed to be God a lot. If you remember in John chapter 8, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. If you remember back in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, you know, the law of God said this, but I say, I mean, Jesus was not afraid to claim to be God. But in this instance, when he says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. What's he really telling the young man? You're not good, but he thinks he is. He comes to Jesus thinking he's good. And what must I do to inherit eternal life? I'm pretty good at keeping the law. I'm pretty good at doing the right things. I think I'm going to be all right, and I'm a rich person, so God must be blessing me because I'm righteous, because that's what the, law, the Pharisees say is evidence of my righteousness, that God, I'm rich. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. In other words, you're not good. And on top of that, he says, go keep the law. And what does the guy say? I have. 
from my youth. I can picture Jesus under his breath going, liar, that's one. But the guy doesn't realize it. So what does Jesus do when he says, sell everything you have and give to the poor? What he does is he repackages the law. Let me paraphrase it for you. Jesus could easily said to him, look, you know what? I've summed up the whole law and the prophets all into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the whole law and the prophets. So, young man, you sound pretty impressive. You think you're able to keep the whole law? Tell you what, this will be easy for you then. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's my neighbor, and come follow me. That's the loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the guy goes away sad. But Jesus points him to the law because the law not only reveals sin, it actually fuels sin. Now, look again, though, at verses 8 through 11. Let's deal with something that looks a little tricky. In Romans chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, Paul says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised or promised life to me proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So here's my question. Did the law bring death to him? No is the right answer. Go to verse 13. He already answers that question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sinful and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, don't think for a second that the law is what killed him, but it does read that way, doesn't it? Before the law came, sin lies dead, but then the commandment came and sin came to life and it killed me. We got to deal with this. Actually, the answer is in some of our previous lessons. Do you, sin was already in him, and sin's already in us that kills us. The law brings it out and speeds up the process. Remember how we've already seen, go back to Romans chapter 5, that all of the people from the time of Adam until the time of Moses, they did what? From Romans chapter 5. What does the Bible say? They died. Go back to Romans chapter 5, look at verses 12 through 14. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here, we've already looked at the fact, the fact that, here Paul's pointing out, the fact that all the people from Adam to Moses died showed that they had sin, because the soul that sins, it shall die. And the fact that they all died means they had sin. Even though they didn't break a commandment like Adam did, Adam broke a commandment and he, that was what killed him, his disobedience, his sin killed him. But there were no commandments until the time of Moses. The law was added 430 years after Abraham. But the fact that they all died shows that they had sinned. But hang on for a second, Jim. If they have sinned, but it lies dead until the law brings it to life, how come they died? Well, here's why. You forgot Romans chapter 2. They did have a law that bring it, brought it to life and killed them. It just wasn't the written law of God written on tablets. Go back to Romans chapter 2. Look at verses 12 through 16. In Romans 2, starting in verse 12, for all who sinned without the law, meaning the written law of God, Moses' law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law, Moses' law, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the written law, God's Moses' Moses's law, 
by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So all of those people from Adam to Moses, I'm going to ask you a tricky questions, so you got to pay attention to the question. Did they have the law of Moses? From people from Adam to, to Moses, no, they didn't. Did they have the law? Yes. He wrote it on their hearts. Now, if you remember our lesson on the age of accountability, how every one of us are born with sin from the time we're conceived, from the moment we're conceived, sin is passed on to us. We're all guilty of that. Yet, God will not hold anybody accountable until when? He opens their eyes to their sin. They have sin. It lies dead until the law, whether through the conscience or the spirit of God or through the written word of God or a preacher or whatever, until the law brings it to life and then it kills them. Is it the law that kills them? No, it's sin that's in them. Do you understand? So babies who die in the womb or babies who die, they have sin, but it doesn't kill them. Until that day that the law, either written on their hearts or the law of God that they have read or heard, brings it to life. Now they're accountable for it. Do you understand? Now, some of you are going, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just blind myself to the law of God. I'm going to ignore my conscience and I'm going to hide myself so I'm innocent. Too late. Because the fact that you're even trying to hide from something tells me you know it exists. Do you understand? Go ahead, Chris. In, that, in chapter 7 where it talks about sin, that the word sin is translated failure. Yes. In order to fail at something, it has to be measured against the succeeding standard. You got it. Yep. As if you couldn't hear on the recording, he said the, the, the word sin is actually translated failure. And in order to fail against something, it has to have a standard to fail against. So what is Paul saying here? He said, I had sin in me. It was going to kill me. But the law brought it to life quicker and aroused those sinful passions. Was it the law that killed me? By no means. It was sin in me producing this death that already existed and was going to be manifested anyway. Now, go back to Romans chapter 7 and look at verses 14 through 25. In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Paul then continues and he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of, the mind, of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's a lot here, and we're going to take some time to break this down. And we're going to go in kind of an interesting direction tonight by doing this. But let me just say this to you. For years, theologians have wrestled back and forth about whether or not Paul in these verses was talking about his experience before he was saved or whether it was after. And I've, trust me, in all my years of studying the word and pastoring churches, I would have people in the church that would convince me on one side and then I'd go meet somebody else and they could take a couple of words here and convince me of the other. And I flip-flopped back and forth, but I settled on it. I believe without question that Paul's talking about his experience after salvation. Twice in here, he says this, it is no longer 
I who do it, but sin dwelling in me. The fact that he says no longer means a transition has occurred. Something has happened to make a change. And he's actually talking about his experience as a Christian. And I'm going to look you in the eye and say, I'm so glad this passage is here. This is one of the greatest passages of Scripture to help me out. Because I know you. I'm going to say, I don't know about you. I do know about you. You're as human as me. This probably describes you too, doesn't it? Oh, wretched man that I am. Let me say something to you real quick. I used to think that the closer I get to Jesus, the less tempted I'd be. The better I'd be, and I just get, let me say something to you. I have learned that the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize my wretchedness and his grace. I used to think that I'll get to a point where temptation wouldn't even bother me anymore. And then one day as I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus was praying in the garden, and he was tempted not to go to the cross, it hit me. Wait a minute. There couldn't be anybody more close to the Father than Jesus was at that time. He was in intense prayer, union with the Father, being ministered by the angel, ministered to by the angels. I mean, if there was a time that you were close to the Father, that was it. And Jesus was tempted even in that moment. And God spoke to my heart. He said, Jim, you're going to be tempted the rest of your life. You have to learn how to live in the spirit and not in the flesh. We're going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to tell you ahead of time. Make a little note on, on your paper if you don't mind taking notes. The difference between being in the spirit and in the flesh. There's a big difference between being in the spirit and in the flesh. And also we're going to talk about setting our minds on things of the spirit and setting our minds on the things of the flesh. I'm going to show you tonight from God's word that if you are in the flesh, you cannot set your mind on things of the spirit. You can't do it. But if you are in the spirit, you still can set your mind on things of the flesh. But you also are free to set your mind on things of the spirit. We're going to break that all down because I hope to be used by God tonight to walk you into a deeper level of what it means to walk in the spirit. And I'm going to say it to you again and again. We have unfortunately had too many preachers teach that walking in the spirit or being under the control of the spirit means that your eyes are going to roll back in your head and your tongue's going to do stuff you don't understand. That's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, walking in the Spirit is a daily yielding yourself because you're in Christ, by yourself to the Spirit, by setting your minds on the things of the Spirit. But you're going to see some things tonight, hopefully, that'll help you take that next step. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I need to tell you something that you already know, but you don't. You're in a war. Let me say, oh, come on, Jim. We all know we're in a war. We've already looked at Ephesians 6. Well, let's go back and look at Ephesians 6 quickly. But we're not going to spend too much time there because I think Ephesians 6 is necessary to know, but that's not all you need to know. Go to Ephesians chapter 6 and look at verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We'll deal with that more tonight. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, plural, against the authorities, plural, against the cosmic powers, plural, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces, plural, of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Who are you fighting against? And don't say Satan. Yes. Cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, rulers and authority. Folks, you're in a war, but your battle is not just against Satan. It's, not, it's against Satan and all of the evil that he rules and all his minions. Are you going to win that battle? Never. You never will. Not on, you, not on your own. But that's the thing that we've all been taught, that they're in a battle. A lot of Christians don't understand that, and they, they just don't even get that far. But I'm going to take you a step further that you might not know. Your enemy, or enemies, have somebody on the inside. Your flesh. And you may not realize it, but your flesh, even though we're in Christ and no longer in the flesh, we'll deal with that in a little bit, your flesh 
is at war against you every single day and it will never take a break. Go back to Romans chapter 7. Look again at what Paul says in verses 21 and following. He just talked about the fact that I want to do good, but I don't, blah, blah, blah. He says, so I find, in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body and my members. So look what he says. I'm at war. And I'm at war in my flesh. Actually, go back to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. You'll see Paul said that earlier, and we might have missed it. In a very familiar passage that we'll quote many, many times because we need to know it. But he says something here in Galatians 5, 16 and 17 that I think a lot of us missed. In verse 16, we all know it well, hopefully, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Don't miss that. The Holy Spirit lives within you and its purposes and desires are opposed to what the fleshes are and the flesh you still have is opposed to what the Spirit of God wants to do and they're continually fighting each other. Don't think you're going to get a break. You're, yes, the devil left Jesus until a more opportune time, but we got a problem. We got sin in our flesh. We'll get to it in our next study in a couple of weeks. We won't get to it tonight. But I'm going to show you from Scripture that even though Jesus was 100% human, he wasn't exactly like you and me. He was like Adam. Was Adam created with sin? No. Sin came into Adam when Adam sinned. And then he passed it on to all mankind. You're going to see, I won't break it down tonight. When we come back in two weeks, we're going to sh I'll show you that the scripture teaches that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus, even though he was human, did not have sin in his flesh. Was he tempted? Yes. Just like Adam was tempted, yet without sin. Jesus is the second Adam. He was 100% human, but he didn't have sin in his flesh. It wasn't passed on to him. That's why the virgin birth is so important. So Jesus, even though tempted, didn't have sin within him that would be aroused by the law. Was he tempted? Yes. Did he give in? Thank God, no. But you and I have a problem. Even though Christ lives within you, we've got an enemy on the inside, and it's our flesh, and it's going to fight you until you die. Now, with that sobering thought, how much more do we need to learn how to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh? We're going to start looking at scriptures that talk to us about that. I have good news for you, though. The same person who took on flesh for us and had victory over it lives in us who believe. And he can and will, if we let him, give us the same victory each day as we turn to him and walk in the Spirit's power and not in the flesh. That's why in Romans 7, Paul says at the end of that section, go back to Romans 7, he says this. He said, thanks be to God who's going to give me victory over this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I then myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But even though my flesh is wanting to serve the law of sin, as you're going to see, Paul says, if I walk in the spirit, set my minds on the things of the spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Even though the temptations will be there, the struggle will be there, I won't give in. You always think that the, that the struggle will go away. No, the struggle is going to be there. You just won't give in because Jesus will give you victory over that. Did Jesus struggle in his flesh? Yes. He was tempted in every way. You and I are, aren't tempted by certain things. Other things tempt us a lot. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He understands the struggle. He knows the struggle. But when Jesus was in the garden and he talked to his disciples, he told them, watch and pray 
so you don't fall into temptation. What did he say next? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We've all known that we're in a battle against the spiritual forces of evil. How many of us really understand that the enemies have something on the inside and it's going to be warring us every single day until I die? You, you want to talk about how what a hallelujah moment that rapture is going to be to finally get out of this flesh? Man, I can't wait. But don't go commit suicide. We can have victory. We can have victory. Now, go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start laying a foundation for you of some of the promises of God that you need to know so that you can act in faith in the way that we're going to be looking at tonight. Go to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. As you're turning there, verses 13 and 14, he's just said that when you trusted God, you were sealed by God's Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And then in verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And if you're curious about how powerful that was, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to who? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He Jesus, Paul says, look, you've been saved. You've been sealed. That's wonderful. Now my prayer is that God will open your eyes to the hope to which he's called to the glorious inheritance we have in the saints, but also that mighty power that's available to us who believe. And it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. And he was given all authority, all authorities underneath him. And he's been given as a gift to the church. You have been given the power and the authority over the enemy. The problem is that's where the preaching and teaching has done us wrong. You're going to see tonight from Scripture that what we've been taught when it comes to the power and the authority over the flesh, the power and authority over the enemy, the teaching and preaching we've heard has actually gone against what Jesus is saying. Tell me if this isn't what you've heard. I command you, Satan. I plead the blood of Jesus. You ever heard this kind of stuff? Where is your focus? On Satan. I'm going to show you tonight. That's not how the Bible teaches us to walk in the power of the Spirit. The Bible teaches us that we walk in the power of the Spirit by putting our full focus on Jesus Christ, focusing only on him and letting him take care of it for us. He's the one who has the authority. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Sorry, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee. When we start trying to cast Satan out, or when we start trying to command Satan, when we start trying to throw Jesus' name around, we have taken our eyes off of Jesus, and we put them on these things, and we try to fight the fight in our flesh. Even though we use spiritual words. No, Jesus says, you just walk with me, I'll take care of the rest. I'll show you what I mean. Go back to John 15. John chapter 15, verses 5 through 17. Jesus has just told them in John 14 that the spirit that's been with them is going to be in them. He's not going to leave them as orphans. He's made all these awesome promises about how he's going to remind them of everything he said, all this. But in John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and, I, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus says you have been set apart, chosen by God to what? Bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? Verse 5, by abiding. Go back with me in your minds to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He says, let's throw away every sin that entangles and stuff, and doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Folks, let me say something to you. And I'm, I, by the way, if you're able to come, not this coming Sunday the 1st, but May 8th, I'm going to be preaching right here. And I'm going to be preaching here at LifePoint, a message from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus comes and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And I'm going to show you how scripturally we have been taught, unfortunately, in the church to focus on evangelism, to focus on reaching the world, to focus on going out and telling everybody. And actually, Jesus taught us the focus was to follow him. Oh, and if you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You'll actually be used by me in more evangelism opportunities if you just walk with me. We've been taught to make our focus evangelism. I'm going to blow that up with a ton of scriptures that you've had heard preached a lot, but I'm going to have you look at them one more time, and you'll see that everywhere it was pointing us back to Jesus. And if you go back in your minds to Acts 42, 42 through 47, the early church devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, which was the Lord's Supper, and the prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily. By the way, was one of those four things evangelism? No. Actually, I'm going to show you, and it's going to be a lot of fun, I'm going to show you how Jesus says, follow me, make that your focus, and I'll use you in evangelism. But we, without realizing it, have man-centered and flesh-centered much of Christianity. We've been taught, oh, the word says to do this and to do that, so I'm going to try to go do it. Jesus says, I never said go do it. I'm showing you the things that you should be looking for as evidence and fruit and things that are evidence of the flesh and things that are evidence of the spirit. But I never said go out and produce patience. I just told you to walk with me. And as you do, an evidence of you walking with me will be patience. He commanded them to love one another. What does John 13, 35 say? By this men will know you're my disciples. By your love one for another. We got it backwards. We try to love one another to prove that we're his disciples. No, no, no. Follow Jesus and you'll love one another. Did you catch it? We've made the emphasis and the focus on us going and working for Jesus, going and doing, and Jesus says, no, fix your eyes on me. That's why we need to learn to pray at all times. That's why we need to pray without ceasing. That's why we need to learn how to daily live in a continual communication with the Father as we do our lives, as we do our jobs, as we go shopping, as we go to the bank, as we deal. And let me say something to you. As you're standing there walking and talking to Jesus and you're in line behind somebody that's got 12 items and not 10 in their basket, I guarantee you, if you really are talking with him and he's talking to you, you will demonstrate patience, you will demonstrate grace, because you won't be focused on really what's going on because you'll be in communion with the Father. And actually, you'll start showing, he'll start showing you things about people around you. Martha, Martha, you're worried about a whole lot of stuff. But Mary's chosen what's best. What did Mary choose? Just sat at his feet. I guarantee you, if Jesus had leaned down to Mary and said, <clears throat> hang on for a second, Mary, do you mind going grab me something to drink? I'm a little thirsty. She would have jumped up and done it. But until then, just hang out. And then he's talking about 
Ask whatever you wish, because the more we spend time with him, all of a sudden his desires become our desires, and we ask things, and then we ask him in accordance with his will, and when we, he, we ask in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us, and we know that he hears us, we know that we have the things that we ask. Psalm uh, 37, verse 4, I think it is, talks about how delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Our focus should be fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's great to get up in the morning and start your day with a prime time of prayer and maybe a little scripture. But what do we do? We close our Bibles, we stop talking to them, and we go off. And that's not walking in the Spirit. You have to learn how to walk in the Spirit. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, at the very end, in verse 25 and 26, Paul says, So if we live by the Spirit, if we've been born again, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's what we have to learn how to do. So let's take a look at some scriptures that help us with this. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, in case you're curious who it was, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus again says, I'm the, branch, I'm the vine, you're the branches. All you're to do is just hang on to me. Hang on to me. And everything you need will be given you at the moment you need it, at the time that you need it. Just rest in me because it may not look like I'm coming through, but I will. I'll produce my fruit in your life in its season. Your leaf won't wither. You just need to hang on to me. But so many things pull us away. So many things pull us, our eyes off of Christ. What's going on in the world? What's going on in the government? Folks, let me tell you, when I, when I continue to walk with him, I'm not perfect at it. Please don't hear me think I'm, make it sound like I'm perfect at it. But the more I do it, the more what goes on in the world all of a sudden just starts to come into my mind via the scriptures. You notice how people are all talking about how because of the war in Ukraine, there's going to be famines and there's going to be lack, lack of food and all this stuff because so much of our grain is produced in Ukraine and all that stuff. And you know what I hear? I don't hear fear and, oh, no, I hear the Spirit say, I already told you that. I already showed you that in the tribulation period at the very beginning, there's going to be day's wage just to buy a loaf of bread. Famine is coming. You will have trouble between now and then. I'm going to take you out here before then, but you will have trouble between now and then, but I got you. Do you remember how I already told you? Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. Your heavenly father knows you need all this stuff before you ask. So just seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Well, how do we do that? We fix our eyes on Jesus. In the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, Colossians 2, 6, walk in him. We're going to need to learn how to walk with Jesus and talk with Jesus all the time. By the way, you're going to need to spend a little more time in the Word to do this than just your quiet time in the morning. Because you're going to need to feed on the Word. Feed on the Word. Father, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. The more you feed on it, the more you let him learn, you learn how to recognize he's talking to you and leading you, the more you'll start to experience the evidence of the spirit within you. And you'll look back and go, you know what? I didn't fight against my flesh, even though my flesh was still there and very alive and very active. In my mind, I serve the law of the spirit, even though my body is still fighting against that. My focus is where? Where? In Jesus, the things of the Spirit. Now, go to Romans 8. You'll see. We're not going to take the time to break it down. We'll break it down in more detail in two weeks, but I just got to let you see it. Look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. He's just talked about how he's not really good at doing this at times, right? But he then encourages us. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are, there's a term again, in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son, 
There it is. In the likeness of sinful flesh. We'll break that down later. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to be set on the mind of the flesh is death, and the set on the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit and in Christ, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body's dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. By the way, in my Bible, I took and made an arrow from verse 11 back to Romans chapter 7, verse 24, where it says, he says in verse 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I have an arrow between that verse and Romans 8, 11, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you see it? He's answering his own question. But here's what I want you to look at real closely. And I'm going to ask for a show of hands because I want to make sure that you're with me because I really need to make sure you're with me before I go any further. How many of you are in Christ Jesus? All right. How many of you are in the flesh? That's why I needed to ask the questions. Did you not read verse 9? Read verse 9 again. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Let's start again. How many of you are in Christ or in the spirit? Yes, very good. How many of you are in the flesh? Do we have to go over it again? And, let, if you're, and, and, and let's deal with this honestly. The only way you could answer I'm in the flesh is if you are not saved. Do you understand? If the spirit of Christ is in you, you're not in the flesh anymore. Now, we still set our minds on things of the flesh. That's the next question. How many of you who are in the spirit and not in the flesh because the spirit of God dwells in you still sometimes set your mind on things of the flesh? All of us. That's why it's hard for us to answer and say, I'm not in the flesh. No, I'm not in the flesh because I'm now in Christ. I'm in a whole new position. I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But Jim, you're still talking about this flesh fighting against you. Yeah. By the way, this is where the false teaching of you can do whatever you want in your body because Paul said here, you serve God in your mind and in your spirit and in your flesh, you serve the law of sin. What your body does, it doesn't matter because we're made alive in our spirit. Our bodies are dead and they're going to be buried. So you can do whatever you want. And the agnostics taught you are free to sexually sin. You're free to do all this stuff because in your mind, you're keeping a pure th thoughts to God in your body. You're just doing whatever your body does. No. The Bible actually talks about the fact that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God with our body. Our bodies, even though they're still under sin and still dying, they're now temples of the Holy Spirit. Would you not agree that as much as man tried to purify the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy Spirit still came to dwell in a pretty messy place? <laughs> yeah. And same with you and me. But we've got to learn now. Because if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. You can't set your minds on things of the Spirit. It's impossible. You can't do it. But if you are in Christ, you still can set your mind on things of the flesh. And we do. But setting our minds on things of the flesh takes on more attributes than just lust and adultery and anger and all that stuff. Do you know that when you try to help God, you're actually setting your mind on things of the flesh? Well, maybe God wants me to do, oh, if it starts with maybe, you're not walking in the spirit. 
You're not keeping in step with the Spirit because He doesn't stutter. And you'll know what He wants you to do. But I haven't heard anything. Then don't move. Then don't move. Keep doing what the last thing you heard. You ever notice back when the tabernacle was indwelt by the Spirit of God? If you go back to Numbers chapter 9, you'll see that actually in that whole passage when the Spirit came to indwell the tabernacle, it said when the Spirit moved, they moved. If he stayed there for three days, they stayed there for three days. If it stayed for a month, they stayed for a month. But if it stayed for one night, they only stayed for one night. And he was teaching them already back then, when I lead, you follow. But if I don't, you don't move. And then what happened that night in the upper room in Acts chapter 2? The pillar of fire, if you will, that came above the tabernacle, came into that upper room and separated into individual pillars of fire. It divided and looked like tongues over everybody's heads. But we hear that word tongue and then they spoke in other languages and we missed it. The pillar of fire divided individual, into individual pillars of fire and came to rest over the head of each of the temples, the tabernacles signifying that his spirit had come to indwell them. And when he moves, we move. If he doesn't, we don't. How often did God have to teach them by saying, stand still and you'll see the salvation of the Lord. Move out now. Go on into battle. Leave here. Philip, go over to the chariot. No, Paul, I don't want you to go into Asia. Was it Missia, Lord? No, it's not Missia. Oh, later on, he had the vision of the man in Macedonia, and he concluded that's where God wanted us to go. By the way, if you read from verse 6 in Acts chapter 16, verse 6 to verse 10, it's just a few verses. You go look on a map, it's 400 miles. That took a few days. We've got to learn how to walk in the Spirit. And you will recognize when he says, turn to the left and turn to the right. By the way, that's in the Old Testament. You'll hear a voice that says, turn to the left and turn to the right. What does he want from you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All along, he's just wanting you to humble yourself on a daily basis. Lay your flesh on the altar, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, which is trying to help God be first. But by the renewing of your mind... How do we renew our mind? We set them on him and things above. But hey, what's the rest of that verse? Then you will know, King James, test and approve his what? His will. Did you catch that? Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Daily renew your mind and then you'll know what his will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. You'll know. It'll become evident. But what if I don't do good at it? Don't worry. It's not up to you. He'll do it. And he knows each of us. And he knows how much time it's going to take for each of us. And he's got a different schedule for each of us. And some of us need remedial classes, and that's okay. It really is. How many of you had to tell your kid, I know you're taking second grade again, but it's going to be good for you? Some of us needed to go to second grade again. It's okay. It's all right. Go to Colossians chapter 3. He's going to give us some specific instructions now. But be careful. Don't run off. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ. Do I need to? ask you to raise your hands again. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. By the way, this setting your mind on things that are above, can you do it in the morning and be good for the day? How come? No, it's not just forget. Go back to the beginning. There we go. Go back to the beginning of his lesson. You are in a war. Your flesh wants to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The spirit wants to keep you from doing the things the flesh wants to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're in a battle. It's going to continue. Just spending a little time with the Lord in the morning is great. But you need to learn how to continue to set your minds on things that are above, that are above, not on things that are. For you have died. 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after, its image of, after the image of its creator. Here then, there's not Greek or Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then... We've just been told what to put off. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now stop. Before we finish the chapter, we have to stop here. Because we have just heard the word of God say, put these things off and put these things on. Correct? What are you going to try to go do? I'm going to try to put those things off and put those other things on. Let me help you out. You're not going to do it because you didn't finish reading. Keep reading. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What were Paul and Silas doing in the prison at midnight when they had been illegally arrested, illegally beaten, put in jail without a trial? Doesn't sound like they were trying to handle it in the flesh, were they? Man, they could have been on the phone with their lawyer. I mean, because legally, they had a case. I mean, they had a case. They could have had those guys publicly beaten. The law said so. I mean, if you go to Acts 22, Paul said, hey, you allowed to beat a Roman citizen without trial? And they were like, <gasps> he could have easily handled it in the flesh. But what did Paul and Silas do? They set their minds on things above. And they said, all right, Lord, nothing happens without your control. I know and you know that this happened because I was walking in obedience to you and walking with you and this happened. And so you have a purpose and a plan. And so your word tells us and by the way, Paul, God says, I wrote it through you. I'm going to focus on you with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in my heart to you. I'm going to let your word dwell in me richly, and I'm going to focus on you, and you got this. And until you tell me what to do next, I won't, but it will become clear, and when it does, I'll do it. And as they're singing and praising God, and they have set their minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth, what happens? Chains fall off, the doors fly open, and not one prisoner moves. The jailer goes to kill himself, and he says, no, 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 don't do it. We're all here. And you can see Paul and Silas going, ah, I see what you're doing now. If I had been on the phone with my lawyer, I would have missed it. How often do we, when the trouble comes, quickly run to what makes sense to us to fix it? You're in a battle. I want to challenge you to be slow to speak, quick to listen. Receive the implanted word and let God start to show you what he has in mind. Sometimes he'll say, call the lawyer. Sometimes he'll say, pull out your Roman citizen card. But other times he won't. But what have we done? We've taken the Bible and we'll say, look what God did here. That's how you're to always do it. 
God says, no, you didn't read the rest of the stories because I didn't always do it the same way. I'm trying to teach you to walk in the spirit. And so when I counsel pastors, and I was on the phone for a while this afternoon with a pastor in Ohio dealing with a really, really hard situation in his church. My counsel was, what's God telling you to do? See, he was calling for my wisdom and what, I sh- what he should do. And you know what? The old Jim Johnson used to tell him, because I got a lot of wisdom and I would love to tell him about it. My job now is to point him to Jesus and teach him how to walk in the spirit. Oh, there's nothing wrong with calling and getting wisdom from a multitude of counselors, but you better learn to listen to which one is God using. And oh, by the way, he might use a little bit of this one guy and a little bit of this other guy and give you an instruction that has kind of a dovetail together. By the way, if you try to do this, it'll become very evident to you whether or not you have his spirit. It actually will. Let me show you what I mean by this. Go to 1 John chapter 3. We got three minutes. We can do it. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 10. We'll close with this section tonight. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hang on a second. Haven't we read that one backwards for a while? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we've read it as... I need to purify myself, right? I don't know. Where's the focus? Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself. Do you see it? We're purified by what? Hoping in him. So I say walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Folks, without realizing it, we have taken the commands of God in the New Testament and done with them what they did with the commands of God in the Old Testament. The commands of God were to show them the law of God and God's desires and God's holiness. It's right and good and holy, but it was also to say you can't do it. And we've done the same thing in the New Testament with the commands of God. Put off these things, put on these things, live this way, live that way, don't do these things. And we have set out to go do them. And just like in the Old Testament, you couldn't do it to be righteous. In the New Testament, you can't do these things to be sanctified. But he promised in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, one who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. What did he promise right before that? May your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Keep reading in 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. By the way, anybody here still sin? I do. But how does it feel when you do it? You don't want to make a practice of it, do you? Well, that's good because there's a big difference between sinning and making a practice of sinning. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. There it is again. Abide in me, and you will produce fruit. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. I cannot stress this enough. If you're in Christ, you will not keep sinning in the sense of practice. And that's why this was all being written, by the way. The truth of what we're looking at here and the fact that we serve God now in the new way of the Spirit, and even though our flesh is still alive but dead. You understand what I'm saying? Dead in the fact that it's dying, but still alive and at war against us. We have to learn how to walk in the spirit and ignore this flesh. 
The false teachers came in and said, just walk in the spirit, do whatever you want in the flesh because it doesn't matter. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. And the teachers had to come in and say, the, the true teachers had to come in and say, look, don't make a practice of sinning because if Christ is in you and you're willing abiding in him, there won't be a practice of sinning. And if you're comfortable in a practice of sinning, you, might have, you don't have the spirit of God in you. But that's also an encouragement to us. If I'm in Christ, I won't make a practice of sin. We've always heard it the other way around. How do we prove that we're in Christ? We stop sinning. You got it backwards again. Do you understand how all these years we've had it preached to us flip-flop? I'm going to hopefully be used to God, and I'm learning this myself. You walk with Jesus, and you watch how he'll take care of all that other stuff. Much more in two weeks. I love you. Thanks for coming.